Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast, sponsored by Shure. I'm Chris Leonard, Director of Audio at IMS Technology Services. Also with us today, Michael Lawrence, Technical Editor of Pro Sound Web and Live Sound International. How's it going, Michael? Hey, what's going on, Chris? I'm glad to be back, man. We uh, have some really cool stuff going on this episode. And uh, before we talk about our guest, I just want to bring up the email that we got. And, uh, you know, like like we were saying last time, Chris, I think, you know, we want to make sure people know that they can reach out to us. They can ask us questions. They can send us comments on the things that we're discussing. That that feedback is very important to us, and it helps us kind of make sure that we're, we're bringing you guys the content that, that is helpful to you. So we got an email at our email address, which is signal2noisepodcast at gmail.com. And the, the question was about DCA spill. We had Robert Scoville on a recent episode, and he's talking about his workflow with Avid mixing consoles. And one of the features he mentioned was DCA spill. So what is DCA spill? So for people that are not aware of DCA spill, what it is, is you probably know if you're familiar with DCAs, a DCA or VCA is a way to control the level of a group of inputs altogether without summing them or affecting their routing or anything else like that. So it's a little bit different than a subgroup. It's basically like a remote control. So um, there's a full sale instructor named Vince Lepore who has a great metaphor that I love to use. He says, when you get your remote out and you turn down the volume on the TV, the audio from the TV is not going through your remote. The remote's just telling the TV to turn up or down. And that's a great way of thinking about a VCA. So traditionally, you know, a lot of engineers would have a VCA for drums, a VCA for keyboards, a VCA for background vocals, and you can move that one fader and keep the balance of all those inputs together and just bring them all up or down together in the mix. And what's interesting about Robert's approach, which I encourage people to go and listen to, if you haven't heard the Scoville episode, check it out, it's awesome. Kyle and I had a great time talking to him. He said that he will use a VCA or DCA per instrument on the stage or per per artist on the stage per musician and so you've always got whatever this person's playing you've got a chris fader and you've got a michael fader and you've got a kyle fader and you can just grab that and you know bring up whatever instrument you need at the time and that's how he organizes his inputs and so he said where this really comes into its own is when you use the idea of vca spill so vca spill is a feature set that is on some digital consoles some call it spill, some call it spill set. I think Midas calls it unfold. So different manufacturers are calling this functionality by different names. But the basic idea is when you select this VCA, the ch console is going to bring you all of the component channels onto the surface. So if I want to look at my drum inputs, I can just hit the spill on my VCA for my drums. And instead of having to go back to my drums layer or go find where those inputs are in the console input list, I can just spill them out, work with them right there on the surface. So it's basically a way of having the console bring you the groups of inputs that you need to work on. So that's the idea behind VCA spill or DCA spill or spill set or unfold. Like I said, you know, you're going to see it called different things on different consoles, but that's that's the basic idea. So so hopefully that answers your question. Thank you for writing in and asking us that question. Um, and uh, again, please feel free to reach out. And Chris is working really hard on our new ProSoundWeb LinkedIn page. So if you guys want to see what we're up to, make sure you go ahead over to LinkedIn and follow our LinkedIn page and check out that content. And Chris, I believe you are uh, working on getting set up on what Facebook and, and Twitter, and we're going to be on some other media. Yeah, that's right, Michael. Uh, I recently set up our LinkedIn page for ProSoundWeb, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all those have been around for a while, but we're working on kind of revamping some of the content that's going out on there uh, to kind of reflect what we have going on in terms of Signals to Noise podcast. 
uh, and maybe some future upcoming uh, podcasts as we're trying to develop the Pro Sound Web Podcast Network, uh, which will include ours, of course, Signals and Noise Podcast, uh, Eric Matlock's Working Your Way Up Podcast, and uh, maybe some future Church Sound uh, podcasts. You know, we have the Church Sound University that Samantha has been working on. Um, so we just ask that any any platform that you listen to the podcast on, uh, make sure you subscribe to it. Uh, also, any uh, social media platforms you use to follow us at ProSoundWeb, that much appreciated. Uh, and most of all, just just tell a friend um, if you're enjoying this podcast. I uh, want to hear some more from us. Uh, we want to know a guest that you have uh, in mind or questions you would have for those guests. Uh, keep all those coming in, uh, and we look forward to uh, just kind of building building on what's already kind of established here with Pro Sound Web and uh, Live Sound International. Absolutely, and you know, one thing I, I want to add to that is it's amazing to me how much content there actually is on ProSound Web. It's, it's, you know, I grew up reading that website, and it's just, it's just incredible. There's, there's something like 25,000 free articles on there. It's all 100% absolutely free content, and nine times out of ten when someone has a question or something they're interested in, I say, wait a second, I think there's a ProSound Web article about that, and you go and dig it up, and there it is. And we just launched our new ProSound Web layout, so it's a much cleaner layout. It's much easier to go in and find the content that you need to find. It's all very organized under the study hall if you just look at whatever topic. So if you want to see everything we have to say about microphones or modern mixing or whatever it is, head to the website, check it out. Again, it's 100% absolute free resource. So um, I just want to make sure that people are aware of, of how much uh, information there actually is there. And, and you know, check out the, the print magazine, check out the website, check out the podcast that we're doing, and like you said, Churchtown University, which we did talk about a bit a couple months ago with Samantha Potter, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it again because we've got a new season of Churchtown University dates coming up in uh, 2020, and that will be coming to a city near you, so you can go and get that training. And um, I think, Chris, we'll, we'll be covering that more in a future episode and make sure people know what, what uh, we have going on with that program. Absolutely, yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I think I think the first one was a good success, um, and uh, I think it, it's gonna turn into uh, it, something that you know a lot of churches need and have you know have a want for. Um, and so yeah, I've been I've been kind of talking with uh, Samantha a little bit, and it's exciting to see to see it come together. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I I, I think you know I, I keep a pretty close eye on a lot of the different. Uh, you know, pro audio forums. I love to read pro audio forums. I love to see what people are talking about. I love to see what questions come up. And, you know, house of worship people have such a hunger for knowledge and a thirst for knowledge. And and um, a lot of times the question is, hey, we we want this information. We just don't know where to get it. And so Church on University is a great way for you and the people that you're involved with at your house of worship. And I also want to say this, if you're not in house of worship, um, I, I do very little work in House of Worship, but you know, going into a group of people to talk about audio basics and audio fundamentals and get that understanding, regardless of what part of the field you're in, super important. Um, it's an extremely affordable program, and uh, it's on the road this year, so it may be coming near you, and you can go get that training. Yeah, I mean, sound is still sound, no matter where right? you're doing it at. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's so funny because uh, it, I think my first tour I was on uh, I got out there and I got on the desk and it was like my second night mixing front of house for this band and the house guy looks over at me as I start to sound check and uh, I put you know fingers on the faders and he says uh, you were trained in a studio weren't you and I'm like, <laughs> I say uh oh <laughs> that's not good so nice. so I, I think you know I, I, again this idea that 
that we just want to make sure we have an understanding of the fundamentals here. And if you choose to go into front of house monitors, RF system optimization, choose to go into broadcast, choose to go into the studio, wherever your path and audio leads you, you know, having these, these fundamentals under your belt is going to be an awesome thing. So um, stay tuned to a future episode. We're going to talk to you a lot more about Churchtown University and that training. And so I think at this point, why don't we uh, get to our guest for this episode? Um, we have a fantastic guest today. His name is Mr. Todd Maitland. Um, he is here to talk to us about his job as a sound mixer for movies. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Chris, this is not something I had thought a lot about until we decided we were going to interview Todd. No, yeah, when when, uh, when you told me who we were talking to, when you said sound mixer, I was like, oh, he mixes film. Uh, that's not what a sound mixer does, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, and we're not going to spoil it because we're about to get in the interview with you guys, and we're going to let you kind of go on that journey for yourself. But uh, it's this was a great example of you know what we were just talking about. There's all these different disciplines in audio that are just whole feuds that that just this entire field that exists that that I hadn't even thought about, um, and just really really cool stuff. And it's also uh, I think important for us to get a little bit out of our comfort zone because I think when you start getting comfortable, you stop learning stuff, and and I don't ever want it to happen. So so. Um, I think without much further ado, let's go to our interview with Todd Maitland. Todd, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right. So, uh, Todd, where are, you, where are you joining us from right now physically? I am actually in East Meredith, New York, which is about 160 miles northwest of New York in my house up in the country where I go to escape New York as much as I can. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, Todd, for our listeners um, who are not familiar with your line of work, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a production sound mixer. Production sound mixer is basically responsible for capturing all of the sound in front of and around the camera. That deals primarily with dialogue, but also when you work on period films and other films that have particular sounds in them, it's it. a lot of it is about recording those kind of sound effects. So film that I just did took place in the 50s. So we had a ton of 50s cars and we had 50s trucks and steam shovels and all sorts of all sorts of uh, props that were, you know, to that time period. So whenever I'm on a film, I'll always get get as many of those particular sounds that are appropriate for the film as I can. So what type of technology were using to do this job when you first started in, in the 70s? And, and what what sort of technology are you using now? You know, basically everybody in the 70s used a Nagra. The Nagra was the key to life back then. It was really the primary component and by far the most expensive component on a sound cart. And you, back then you boomed a lot. So, um, you, you know, wirelesses were just starting to make their inroad at that point. But you really relied upon booming. And one of the things that I'm kind of really sad to see that go is because sound quality from booming is definitely better than sound quality from wirelesses. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is just the microphone has a much bigger diaphragm. Two, it's more of a perspective, you know, because a wireless microphone is always going to be from the perspective of your chest as opposed to a microphone that is, you know, ambient in the room. Um, but anyway, so so equipment went from from Anagra and, and boom mics to bringing in wireless mics, and then around two thousand, everybody was pushing to go to DATs to DAT tape, 
And I was one of the only holdouts that never went to DAT tape because I felt that it was just a prosumer quality recorder. And I understand why everybody was doing it because the the value in post-production was tremendous because now you no longer had to have Magstripe. You knocked out a, a tremendous amount of cost on the back end of it once you went to digital. Um, so I held out until Fostex came out with a with a small um, DVD-R recorder, which had the quality, you know, which was up to 24, 24 bit quality. And, um, and then that kind of transition, that transitioned the machines into the digital world. And then wireless microphones have just been growing in leaps and bounds. And I think, and just recently they have passed a new threshold now in, in wireless mics where it really does make your system a whole lot easier than what it used to be. Dealing with wirelesses, particularly in New York, you're dealing with tremendous amounts of RF, um, so you wouldn't get the distance from them. And then there's always the inherent things of trying to hide these larger packs and all of that. So now the packs are smaller, the reception is much more fine-tuned, um, and it makes that world a lot easier. So, so now, now, I mean, the system that I'm using now is kind of a crazy system because I just worked on West Side Story. So I, I built a new cart from the ground up and it's basically a $220,000 Ferrari. <laughs> <It's Nice. like> <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so this so transition has been really, you know, from the over the shoulder little Nagra or a little Nagra and a little mixer and a boom to now, you know, much more multi-track. Everything's multi-track. Um, the recorders have gotten smaller and easier and the wireless has gotten more complex and better. <laughs> and my dog is here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, Todd, okay. I, 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 I was looking over your, your IMDB entry, which just lists, you know, a lot of the, the work that you've done on films. And I definitely encourage our listeners to go and do that because the, it's quite an impressive filmography. Um, you worked recently on, on Joker. Um, as a sound mixer, um, and that movie is just all the rage right now. And do you have any anything interesting to share about the production aspects of that? That that someone that's a fan of the movie might might enjoy hearing about. Well, I think you know from a sound perspective, it was again that was another period piece. So we really tried to capture as much of what was going on at that you know with anything period that we had. We had wet streets the entire time. Um, and we were all in practical locations. So we really were trying to get rid of the current day sounds and really focus on the, the, the period sounds for the film. But honestly, you know, as of, as of a job, I would say, you know, everyone was mesmerized watching Joaquin. You know, Joaquin was just unbelievable in his performance and so helpful, anything that you would need you know, he was there, to, you know, to really help out in any way. And we did a lot of crazy scenes. He has his shirts off. He has a shirt off in multiple scenes. Um, and we're kind of in, in, in some crazy locations with it. But, um, you know, it was it was more of a standard sound job in a way where it's really trying to capture everything that we do in New York and trying to get dialogue clean and that. Whereas other films, you know, specialize on, you know, you have, you have more, um, um, 
particular things that you're looking for in the film try, that you're trying to get. Joker, we really kind of set out to make it the most real sounding film that it could because it's supposed to be about a real person in a real city and just make all of those sounds real and add the grittiness of the city, you know, whenever we could to it. Would you say that what percentage, and I know it varies on the film, but what percentage of the dialogue that you record is used in the final edit versus what is used as a reference for ADR looping later on? I would say on average about 98, 99% is used in the film. Wow, they, I would not have guessed that. That's cool. They rarely, rarely do they ever want to go to ADR. And I can go to a movie like I did The Irishman and I watched The Irishman and there's probably only two little there were two moments that I noticed that were ADR and it was just because they wanted to change the dialogue in it. Um, you know, that's the goal is to really get the best dialogue that you possibly can. And when you do that, you know, you're, you're, you're taking an actor. So like Joaquin, you, you get his voice in your head. So I'll get his voice in my head and I'll use different microphones in different situations. Some rooms are very ambient. Some rooms are very tight. Sometimes you're working on a wireless, sometimes you're working on a wireless and a boom. But the ultimate goal is to really make his voice sound the same because you film a film over months and months, you know, but you watch the film in two hours. So if the voice is changing all over the place, when you change from one location to another, it's very distracting. So by getting, by me getting their voice in my head and then really trying to duplicate that with whichever microphones I need to use for whatever situation that we're in is really a lot of my goal on each film. So outside of dialogue, though, sometimes you're you're recording other other sounds, right? So I imagine most likely you're more in tune with everyday sounds than the average person is. Um, but are there sounds that we take for granted that matter that you're trying to pick up that if you didn't capture them, it'd be something we'd be missing or not sound right? Yeah, when you you know when you're capturing other sounds for films, you want to get them as clean as you possibly can. So you want to get them without dialogue. You want to get them without any other sound effects going on around them. So you can add in as much as you want or as little as you want of them without them being dirtied up with other sounds on them. So at the end of Joker, I took a week and went around um, with one of these VR microphones, four-channel VR mics, and recorded all sorts of ambiences in the city. Everywhere that we filmed, the, the famous now, now famous Shakespeare stairs, um, but subways, since we did a lot on subways, I had the microphone hanging in between cars as we'd go into tunnels and, and then out of tunnels. Because in the movie, when that whole scene happens, He's going in, he goes, they from, they go from outside to inside the tunnel and then you get all the, you know, the stops and the wish by. And so I tried to get from every different perspective and I would ride the train since it was an empty train in the movie. I would try to find the oldest train that I could find in the subway system and go there at like two in the morning and ride the train and have the microphone in all different parts of the, of the car, just trying to mimic what visually is represented on film. That's so interesting. Um, what am I, and I noticed looking over your, your filmography, you've done a lot of work with M. Night Shyamalan, um, and I, I like a lot of his films. And um, one that stood out to me in particular was the film Signs, which came out in 2002. And that movie scared the living crap out of me. And a, a lot of the reason for that was because a lot of the scariest parts of that movie, there's no music happening. It's just 
sound. You hear wind, you know, just kind of rustling in the in the cornfields and stuff. And it, and it occurred to me that this is a movie that uh, relies heavily on on sound, natural sound to be scary. Uh, what was that like working on that? Yeah, again, what I'll try to do after each film. So once we've once we've filmed it, and I'm there every moment that we're filming. So once we've filmed it, I I have a really good reference of what we need for sound effects. So again, like Joker, I knew all from all the things that we needed on Joker, and for Signs, all the things that we needed in Signs. So again, after Signs was over. I went out with myself and with other people on that because we needed those footsteps going through the corn. We needed the, you know, the closeness of a corn leaf being slowly pushed over. And then variations of wind. Wind, wind is a tricky thing to record. You know, obviously you need to have all the windscreen and all that, but, but when you're, trying to get it is a blowing through the trees, through the grasses. It's what it really hits that makes the noise. So, you know, you don't realize it if it's just blowing by itself without hitting anything, it makes no sound. So, um, so we would travel around to all different places trying to find the right wind and then the right birds and the right, you know, nighttime sounds, the cricket sounds and, and everything else that you add in, like you said, to add to a tapestry to make it, to add fright, you know, or to add texture or to add whatever you're really looking for at that moment. What's your process like when you're wrapping up? Um, you know, what's your interaction with the, with the director? Do you, do you sit down and, and go through bits of it and, and, you know, exchange uh, comments or is it kind of like, Hey, let me show you this, what I put together. I mean, can you talk about that creative interaction with the, with the director of the film? Yeah, it starts, it's, it starts obviously before we start shooting and then once we start shooting, they're really listening to my work every night. You know, they go back and have dailies, so they're really listening to the work at that time. You know, and there are d different ways in recording dialogue. You can have a much more intimate sound. You can have a much more real sound. Um, you can have a very ambient sound. So those are conversations that I'll have with the director in the beginning, how... How intimate, how real do they do they want it? Some people want just that wireless sound where you really try to eliminate as much background as you possibly can, eliminate the ambient bounce in the room as much as you can, and you just want that. It's more of a surreal sound, whereas if you start adding in a little bit more room mics to it, it makes it sound what we're used to. You know, as your ear listens to somebody speak in a room, you're hearing the voice directly from their mouth, but you're also hearing it as it bounces off the ceiling and off the wall and that. So that's what makes up, you know, the that normal sound that we're used to. So once you cut that out, it makes it sound not normal. Um, so conversations in the beginning with a director, if it's just a straight film without without music or or without any real particular special effects, then it's really about the voice quality, how, what we're looking for in it, um, how, again, how intimate do we want it. Um, and then, again, they'll see my work every single day. And in, in the old days, we all used to go to dailies. So you would have all heads of department would go the day after you filmed, the day after you filmed, you would see that prior days of filming. And... Um, and for me, it was a really great education to be able to go and see your sound that's not been touched by anybody and how it marries to the picture and how it really interacts and, and, and matches the picture, really, which is, which is always the goal. My father was a sound mixer, and he always taught me, 
you know, perspective is so important, you know, and it, and it used to be a lot easier to record films in perspective because they used to use one camera. So a, as a sound mixer, you can, you can record for one camera and add in as much background or take away as much background or however you want to record it. But now when you're using a wide camera and a tight camera at the same time, now you're trying to play for two perspectives. Mm. So now you have to wire them and you boom them for the wide shot. And it's, it's, unfortunate, it's an unfortunate sacrifice of sound. And I understand why everybody does it, obviously, because you save you know, a tremendous amount of time and energy and you capture performances of multi-cameras. Um, but for sound, it does make it very difficult, which is what made wireless is more important now also, because now on most films, you really have to wire people almost all the time, where 10 years ago, I was hardly ever wiring people. I would wire them only when I had to wire them. You know, now it's like, you know, we'll wire them because, you know, maybe we'll capture this or or, or get that, or the camera may all of a sudden want to pull out wide. The director may say, hey, let's go wide with this one, and they never planned on doing that, and all of a sudden you don't have anybody wired, and now everybody has to wait, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to wire everybody, which is probably the longest 10 or 15 minutes on Earth. <laughs> and, you know, so it's it has definitely changed in, in that way. Um, so you, you kind of set up actually one of the questions I had, you know, looking at IMDb, it looks like uh, you're kind of born into a family of uh, sound engineers. It looks like I think maybe your brother and some other family members were, were in the field. Uh, and, and specifically, one of the notes uh, says that, uh, I guess, your father pioneered the use of wireless microphones and sound equalization within the industry. What is, what's that referring to? Well, first thing with equalization is that nobody wanted, post-production didn't want sound mixers to use equalization. And I understand why, because I think if, if you abuse it, then you can totally alter the sound in a point where it's not really usable. And particularly back when he was working, what he was working off of a mono nagra. So what you laid down on that mono nagra track was what you got. So if you EQ'd a lot or if you uh, made a bad mix and didn't bring in one person, you know, when they were talking, then that was there forever. You know, now you have with with all of our multi-track machines, you have the one mix channel that we all do. So I'll do I'll still do a mix as if I'm trying to mix it for the for the film, for that shot at that moment. But then you also have on tracks two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all of the ISO tracks of all of your different microphones. So post can go back in later and deal with it. But I agree with my father in that you have to use equalization. Because again, going back to when I'm trying to get that actor's voice in my head, there's no way that I can do that without equalizing. If I have a wireless microphone that's under a sweater, I can't, it will not sound anywhere similar at all to what a microphone would sound, to a boom microphone at that moment, or even a microphone that was not under a sweater. So in order to, to make that microphone sound more like the sound of that person's voice that I'm used to, you know, you add in high end, you know, and you can pull out some of the mids and, you know, just, again, trying to get it to sound what you're used to, have it in their head. Um, and then as of wireless is, yeah, so my father was was one of the first people that would use wirelesses and he was using, and I actually kept using them for a while, Audio Limited from England. Um, 
they were really one of the top companies, you know, in development at that time, and they stayed strong for for many many years. Um, but you know, the, I remember I, I did Tootsie. I was a boom man on Tootsie, and somebody showed me a picture of me walking next to Dustin Hoffman and Jessica Lange, holding the, the receivers. You know, the wireless receivers, like eight feet away from the actors. You know, tethered by XLR cables. You know, back to the mixer because that was about as much distance as we could get with them back then. You talk about EQ and prior to to recording. What uh, what type of gear is involved with that? Um, where, where is that EQ happening? It's happening right on my mixer. So you know my mixer panel. I have every microphone coming into the mixer panel, and and I'll just EQ at that point. You know for each one, whichever you know, however I think that each person should sound. Again, trying to match them to their voice in my head. So Todd, do you when you look back on on your career, which is you know like like I like I said, it's uh, it's a pretty long list of very recognizable and successful movies. Is there anything that, that stands out at you as as uh, hey, this is a real first? You know, we've done something cool here that that hasn't been done yet. Or will you look back and say, wow, that was a really unique, crazy solution that we came up with, but it worked. I mean, you talk about hanging the microphone between the subway cars. That's kind of you know that's I'm always amazed. When people are trying to get sound effects, the crazy stuff they come up with. Do you have any any awesome stories like that you can share? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, the great thing is is that every movie is different, you know, and every situation is different, and all the people involved are different, and the approach to getting sound is, you know, one director's approach is very different from another director's approach. Some are all over it, and some, you know, don't want to give you, you know, an extra moment to get anything. So, um, but. You know, I think look, it's okay. <laughs> Thanks for under attack. <laughs> He's a half city dog, half country dog, so you know, it takes him a little while to get acclimated up here again. We have the deer running around and all that, so um so you know, doing musicals for me, I, I've I've done nine musicals and now I'm about to do um Lynn Manuel Miranda's directorial debut um, in the spring, which will be my 10th. And, you know, I don't know exactly how that happened, but I'm really happy that it did. And the processes that I've learned along the way in, in doing things for musicals um, has been extremely helpful. I mean, way back, I mean, probably back to the producers I started recording. So when the actors would go in and do their vocal pre-records before the show, so on a normal musical, actors go in for about two months of rehearsals, and then a couple weeks before they're ready to start filming, and they've really rehearsed everything, and they've done all their dance numbers, and they've done all of their singing rehearsals, then they'll go into the recording studio, and they'll lay down their vocal tracks so that you have them for playback if you're going to do lip sync. And we also have them for playback because I'll put them in there in little earpieces for them to actually sing live too, so that they can, so that in post-production, if they're singing live to their own voice in post-production, they can actually now go back to the pre-record if they want because they're in sync with themselves. But one of the things that I did early on was instead of them just recording with the big fat studio microphone on those early tracks, I would also bring in my boom microphone 
and the lavalier microphone that I planned on using with that actor and put them both in the, in the appropriate position. So a lavalier would be right near their chest um, and the boom microphone would be about a foot and a half over their head. So this way, when you're editing the movie, you can transition from what I'm recording on set and then if you're going into song, you don't have to go from right into the big fat studio microphone, which is that immediate giveaway that you're going to, you know, you're going into a music studio to, you know, on the film. It, you can go to a lavalier. So you can start the song on the lavalier that I'm using to record their dialogue. And then within that one line, you can then fade into the big studio microphone and you won't get that abrupt change. So just one of one of the tricks you know that i do um that i've picked up for doing musicals another one that i'll do and in doing like greatest showman was great because there was a lot of actually prop movement is so when you're doing big dance numbers they're always lip sync you're never going to do them live singing the only th songs you do live singing are more of the intimate songs um, where there's not a tremendous amount of movement because actors can't sing very well when they're really dancing. <laughs> and it's also very hard to record really good sound when they're really dancing and to try to make it sound even. So a lot of times, you know, you'll do, you'll do those dance numbers to lip sync. So that means you're having speakers playing on the set the entire time, which annihilates any ambient track that you have whatsoever because you have speakers over it. So what I'll do after we've completed filming that particular song, I'll give all the actors earpieces and I'll have them reenact the exact same dance without any of their vocals. So they'll do the dancing, they'll, they'll tap their feet. They're like in Greatest Showman where they have the uh, shot glasses, you know, do their shot glasses all in sync. So, and I'll do it with a bunch of different microphones. So I'll have like three booms following them around, one close here, one close there, and one a little wider. And then I'll do a plant microphone that's much further away. So again, so in post, you'll have the ability to play with, with, with perspective with that. Um, so this really, it gives you a full in-sync Foley track. It gives you an ambient track. It, it gives you everything. So you actually just have to add it in. So if you're playing back the, the, the canned music, the pre-recorded music, and you just add this track into it, all of a sudden it sounds like a real live track. So there are a, a lot of simple things that I've figured out to do music-wise um, that can help tremendously, you know, in post-production later on. I'll do things where I'll try to get the first line of each song live on set, even if it's a wild track. So again, to, that's again to help with that transition, you know, from what I'm recording on set to what was pre-recorded in the vocals inside the uh, studio. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, Todd, because I, I, as I mentioned in an email to you last week, I just finished mixing a, a theatrical production of West Side Story. And, um, you know, it was a pretty nasty haul, like, you know, two seconds of reverb. It was built for, you know, concerts and, you know, orchestral stuff. And so when you go in there and try to do amplified, you know, live vocals with, with lav mics over the top of a live orchestra, um, you know, mic placement, mic choice, that stuff becomes incredibly important. And it's just such an interesting departure from what I'm used to, which is in live, which is at all costs, we want to totally eliminate as much of the room as possible at all times from our from our microphones. And that is absolutely not your goal when you're going for, for movie dialogue. You, you are often going out of your way to include 
the room sound. And that's just a really interesting perspective. And I, I think it's something that will be quite thought provoking to a lot of our listeners who do primarily, you know, live reinforcement because it's a total paradigm shift. But I am along that I am still trying to get the most pristine dialogue that I can. But in addition, I want to give them the other tracks so that they can so that they can then choose, you know, how much they want to add into the shot. You know, um, it's it's you still have to get the dialogue as pristine as you possibly can, which will then give you much more flexibility. As you know, later on, you know, if you have again, if you have a lot of noise on one of the dialogue tracks, you're going to try to work with it, you know, electronically with Pro Tools to try to get rid of it, but you can only get a, get rid of a certain amount of it. You know, living in New York, you know, you're constantly dealing with noises, you know. It's just like you're filming in an apartment and the electricians have run the cable through a window, you know, or you have air conditioners or refrigerators or all of those other things, and, and you really have to stay on top of that stuff. That's what I, I teach my, I, my kids at NYU is it's really important to to, again, get those dialogue tracks as clean as you possibly can so that later on, you know, you can go back in and add whatever you'd like. But if you're dealing with a window that's, you know, you can't close and the actors are standing next to the window and it sounds like you're on the street, but it doesn't look like you're on the street, that's a problem. And again, justifying sound for a picture. Like, so if there's construction going on, um, and you see the construction, you know, then it's totally fine. But if the camera's faced away from the construction and the construction is blasting over all of the tracks, then, you know, then it's not justified and it's annoying and, and it's going to take your audience out of the picture. Was, was there ever a time uh, when the shot went perfectly, uh, but then you had to ask them to redo uh, the take because maybe the audio was wrong or bad or something, something crazy happened? Yeah, there's, you know, there's always going to be things that go wrong. And, and, and wireless is are you know, they are the main culprit because, you know, you, again, you have a unit that's attached to another person with a microphone element that's attached to their chest. And, you know, there's somebody, I, um, yeah, just, just on West Side Story, all of a sudden Maria starts singing and she got so carried away, she just put her hand right over her microphone you know, because it was like, mend my heart, you know, and, and she was, <laughs> and, and it went like, and my, <laughs> nice, nice. Um, and, every, and everybody was like, oh, that's beautiful. Oh my God, so beautiful. <laughs> if, uh, if someone wanted to get into this field, where would, where would they even begin? Where would they start? You know, the great thing is nowadays is that there is so much production being made. You know, it, it's really kind of like the Wild West in a way, you know, and for better and for worse, because it's going to just create a glut of, of, of product, you know, which people have to sift through. But the fact that you don't need a film camera anymore, you don't need any other things. So um, there are a lot of people that are starting to make films, you know. So I also teach at NYU and and they all crew for each other and making their own films. So working on on any of these independent films is really the best place to start. So I have a nephew who's working with me um, as Boom Man and that, and I've been getting him off onto these type of of independent films and, you know, where you can really, where you can learn in an environment, you know, 
uh, you know, where there's room for error, you know, there's on, on these bigger jobs, there's really no room for error. So, um, it's a, that's a difficult place to try to start, but, and it's just hard to get jobs, obviously, you know, on the, on the bigger films. But I think coming in on the independent things, looking around to see who's shooting, who's shooting things and to put together a small equipment package, you know, I think nowadays, you know, you need, you know, probably f at least four wirelesses and, and everything's so small now you can have one of these over the shoulder bag packs, you know, with four, maybe, I mean, you should have up to eight wires, but I mean, you can, you can get away uh, with some of these small projects with four wires and a boom or four wires and two booms. Um, and, and I also recommend the booms being wireless now too, which is what I've been doing for years and years. And that just makes life tremendously easier for the boom men and also time-wise much more efficient for a production. The sound was still better back in the old wire <laughs> days. I was one of the last people. I held on to analog more than anyone I know. And, and during the Oliver Stone days, I was working with Sound Deluxe and Wiley Stateman and Lon Bender. And we loved Dolby SR. We were like, freaks for Dolby SR. It was just the nicest sound there was. It was so warm and so clean. So we actually built for Born in the Fourth of July and The Doors um, and JFK. I was dragging around two stereo Nagras with four channels of Dolby SR and they were studio rack monsters that were on their own case with this huge battery and an inverter system. It was kind of ridiculous, <laughs> you know, <laughs> looking back at it. But I have to say those films may, may have been some of the best sounding films that we did. And that was, you know, that was back in the day where it was one camera. Um, and so you really, you know, you really worked for every single shot. You made every single shot match the camera and and when you know you're willing to work on when when production is willing to you know to put in for more equipment and and kind of get you to that level, the sound on those films is really such so rich. The dialogue is really just warm and rich. So I just wanted to go back over one of the things we talked about earlier, and that is the advancement of technology and how quickly it's come and how slowly it's come at times. You know, for years, like I said, it was the Nagra, then a mixer, then a digital recorder, and then not big changes until just recently. When I was setting up to do West Side Story, I needed 24 wireless microphones all the time. I needed six channels of IFBs so I could feed wireless speakers, so I could feed Steven and music people and all of that. And to get to the wirelesses that we wanted... Because knowing that the wireless is, we all live in a wireless world now. We as sound mixers live in a wireless world. So the wirelesses are also the most expensive part of our carts. And especially when you have 24 of them. So I sat down with Peter at Gotham Sound and we pretty much brought in all the big players to come in and show us the greatest, the newest and greatest technology. And out of all of it, we chose the Axiant the Shure Axiant digital system, it completed so many things that we needed, but they are so advanced in their wireless technology, and the size of their micro pack for film is amazing. The distance we got out of them, the way you can just line up 24 wirelesses, and 
push a button and it sends out the signal to every one of them. And with their wireless workbench system, we virtually had no problems in New York City, which is, as everyone knows, is packed with radio frequencies. So, um, so I say that wireless is definitely the newest technology, and thank God, because that's the way producers want us to film movies now. They want everybody wired. We're pretty much using wirelesses so much more than we ever have before. So this technology coming up at the same time as the need for it is really pretty great. That is really awesome. Uh, Todd, thank you for lending us your uh, your expertise and your experiences. It's been really interesting, and I think it'll be quite thought-provoking for a lot of our listeners because it's sort of it's a little bit different than uh, than our usual fare here and and it's uh, that's always good to get some variety here so thank you very much for for being with us oh it was my pleasure i really enjoyed it and um and look forward to hearing it all right very much uh so stay tuned everyone for more signal noise podcasts in the future if you have any comments or questions for either us or for todd reach out to us at signal number two noise podcast at gmail.com and stay tuned for more. We'll talk to you soon.